This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 101 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest today is Brian Martin, Vice President of Vulnerability Intelligence at Risk-Based Security, a company that provides risk identification and security management tools, leveraging their data breach and vulnerability intelligence. Brian shares his experience turning data into meaningful, actionable intelligence, common misperceptions he's encountered along the way, and why he thinks companies shopping around for threat intelligence need to be careful to ask the right questions. Stay with us. I got my start in computers at a real early age, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, on a TRS-80, worked up through a Commodore 64, mm. into the world of, in, I guess it was Intel back then, of the 386, but it was in the early 90s, 91, 92, that I got my first modem, found BBSs, and kind of sparked that journey. Uh, that's probably where it starts for the most part. At that point, I was in college. I got my first account on a VAX VMS system that was connected to the internet. Whole wide world of interesting stuff. And this was before the web existed. Mm-hmm. Shortly after, I guess, 92, 93 range, moved to Denver, became a member of a hacking group up here. Uh, we broke into systems back in the day, back when it was a matter of discovery that you couldn't Google everything. You didn't have manuals. You didn't have 87 operating systems to, to install through VMware. So it was more hacking about discovery and learning about the computer systems out there. And in 96, got my first job as a professional pen tester. Uh, the year before that, kind of quit the hacking cold turkey as I was trying to get that real job. And throughout that phase and then since, uh, for various reasons, I was collecting vulnerabilities. Um, in the 90s, it was so that we could break into systems. And in 96 and on for the next 13 years, it was to have a catalog of vulnerabilities and exploits to look for on penetration test. And eventually joined uh, OSVDB, which is the open sourced vulnerability database. It ran from 2003 through, I think, 2011. I was for a while, about the only one that was hardcore working on it, 40 hours a week in addition to my job. Wow. Um, but that whole time, aggregating vulnerabilities, and eventually OSVDB, we determined, was not sustainable. We weren't getting any of the community help and input we needed. A lot of companies and individuals were using our work for profit and not following our license. So we basically closed it down and started up a commercial iteration, which turned into risk-based security. And that's one of our two offerings today. So essentially going on, I guess, 25 years, most of which uh, I aggregated vulnerabilities. Yeah, I I wonder for for folks who have who got their start back in those early formative days when that sort of access to computers was not something that everybody had. Do you think that that informs how you approach things today? Do you think that gives you a a different perspective, a different way of thinking about things? In many ways, it absolutely does. I would say it certainly uh, changes my perspective. Um, Growing up where you had to learn how to program using what was almost a brochure and then going to a store to find a magazine that had 
programs printed out and you had to transcribe them and type them in yourself and debug them. Yeah, I, I think that that really makes me appreciate what we have today and the convenience and the ability to quickly just Google and find information or to say, hey, I want a program that does this. And instead of writing it, just go search GitHub or whatever. I would say that anyone coming from that era probably has a different approach. Yeah, it seems to me like uh, a lot of folks from that era really have uh, a really strong set of problem-solving skills. They're very resourceful. I think so, yeah. I want to say that that contributed to um, my industry experience where I have always been kind of a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. Um, because back then it was a little bit of programming, a little bit of the operating system, a little bit of hardware, a little bit of this. And then even getting onto the Internet in 92, I guess, uh, having to figure out just enough about VAX VMS to get onto what we considered a better machine, a Unix system. And then certainly for the, the hacker mindset, uh, having to figure out how to determine what protocols are there before you had a port scanner, how to figure out what the, the protocol was before you had debugging tools, really. Yeah, it was a different, uh, different experience for sure. And even moving into the pen testing era, uh, from 96 on, like I said, for the next 13 years, then we saw a flood of tools come out that made life a lot easier in some ways, but it also made it more difficult in others because the expectations of your testing uh, grew with each year. It wasn't just, oh, find the open ports and look for known vulnerabilities. It was start to find new and unique vulnerabilities, start to find trust relationships, this and that. So definitely a fun adventure, though. Describe for us uh, risk-based security. What are, what are the offerings that you have, and uh, what's the, uh, the range of services you provide? We're actually um, kind of a fairly niche company for our two major offerings. Um, the, the one that I'm most familiar with and work on is uh, called VulnDB, which is basically just a commercial vulnerability database. Uh, they sound simple on the surface. When you talk to someone, they're like, oh, well, you just you know read mail lists and you collect vulnerabilities. Yeah, that's that's a, a beginning, but it goes way beyond that. Um, so we're not only aggregating the vulnerabilities, but we're doing some sanity checking, making sure they're legitimate. We're wrapping a whole lot of metadata around it. We're doing standardized uh, vendor product versions. We do uh, we track credit T, which is kind of academic at this point, but still interesting. We track seven different dates for every vulnerability if it's available, hmm. um, and we're constantly adding more fields, more classifications, uh, more tie-ins to NPM modules and, uh, you know, different sources. And the other side we do is called CRA, Cyber Risk Analytics, which is basically data breach aggregation. And that's another one that sounds easy on the surface, but once again, we wrap a lot of metadata around it. We have to make sure that we understand what data was compromised, how many records. We've also, for seven or eight years now, been doing Freedom of Information Act requests against uh, at the state level because most of the states have some kind of mandatory breach disclosure, but some of them don't have a consolidated law that says, well, it has to be this office or that one. So hmm. there are literally states that say, well, you have to report it and kind of leave it at that. So we have to actually make requests against maybe three to five different agencies and say, hey, do you have any breaches reported? Can you please send them? So there's a lot of work around that. The good thing on both sides is that with that extra effort, we have a lot better view into the world of vulnerabilities and data breaches. 
How does someone who is using your products and using your services, how does that fit into their overall uh, spectrum of ways that they're protecting themselves? Um, Good question. So in my mind, we have uh, three general types of customers. The first one is probably the more traditional where you have a large organization, say 10, 20, 30,000 employees, maybe a million endpoints or, you know, devices or, or whatnot. And they use our vulnerability intelligence to essentially secure their systems. So they're looking for, well, we have this product Uh, There's a vulnerability in it. We need to patch it or upgrade it, or there's no solution yet. Maybe we need to isolate it on the network or do increased monitoring there. We also have a second type of customer that is more focused um, from a development angle. So we're talking large software shops um, that basically put out software used by tens or maybe even hundreds of millions of people. And their products may use 100 or 200 libraries, third-party dependencies. So they rely on our intelligence to say, well, hey, wait a minute. This third-party dependency has a vulnerability. It might affect our product as well. And then the third type is security providers. So one company is a vulnerability scanner uh, writer, and they use our vulnerability feed to determine what plugins to write for their scanner. And that gives them coverage well above and beyond uh, anyone else in the industry, essentially. Uh, Do you find that that there are common misperceptions that people have when it comes to uh, how to go about best using things like vulnerability databases? Absolutely. Um, Even the the mature organizations that approach us, uh, they've got some great security practices. They've got a lot of discipline. They've got a lot of institutional knowledge which is great to see, but even those organizations uh, will often start out with, now that we've seen your data, wow, how do we actually effectively use this? We're not a software company, we're just the intelligence provider, but we give them some advice based on prior customers and our knowledge of you know, what kind of data we have. In many cases, these companies, they either have to stand up a new system, a new team, or um, basically integrated into their security lifecycle. It can be a little challenging uh, on their side, but once they do, generally speaking, we, you know, we've had almost 100% customer retention since uh, we started in 2011. Yeah, it's interesting. So there's sort of, a, I guess, as with any uh, tool or, or new process, there's a bit of an onboarding process of, of getting them up to speed and making sure that they understand and are, are using the tool in the best, uh, the best way possible. Right. So one of the challenges that these companies typically have is they had prior, prior to us, they had been using some vulnerability intelligence somewhere and a majority of them were using CVE, which is run by MITRE or using it through NVD, the national vulnerability database, which are mm-hmm. identical data sets, but NVD adds some metadata to it. And when they move to us, they realize, wait a minute, you have almost 66,000 more vulnerabilities than NVD does. We need to reevaluate how we approach our security. Uh, It wasn't just about patching, or it, it no longer is about just patching those machines that they commonly had to. Now they're realizing, wait a minute, there are vulnerabilities in our IoT and this and that. Even our slide projector in the the boardroom, I, I guess it, it's kind of a moment of realization to them that 
yes, they knew vulnerabilities were prevalent, but now they actually have the data to prove it. Um, so like I said, it's kind of eye opening to most of the companies coming into to our offering. I would imagine also that this sort of information is helpful for the folks on the tech side of the house to be able to take that data to folks in the boardroom. Absolutely. And again, that's definitely another place where it's kind of eye opening. If the, the executives weren't involved in the purchase decision, sometimes it'll be a case where, you know, they'll get a monthly report and it'll say, well, we, you know, triaged X amount of vulnerabilities. And the next month, the report says, well, we changed providers. We now had to triage twice as many vulnerabilities. And mm. that can be a shock to not only the, the tech side, but to the executives as well, um, where they have to reconsider, wait a minute, are we throwing enough resources at security? Um, can the current process be modified so it stays efficient? Or do we need to bring on a few more people to help this process along? Getting over that initial uh, aha moment that uh, there's, there's there, perhaps there have been a lot of unknown unknowns until you get to see uh, the full spectrum of what might be out there. Yeah, I would say that most of ours fall in the known unknown category. They know there okay. are other vulnerabilities out there. They just don't know what they are. Then they get our offering and they're like, okay, the floodgates open. Now we have a lot better picture. Um, And then with that data, they can also, uh, in our portal, uh, basically do statistics and do a historical picture. One of the things that we're fond of is reminding them that we aggregate vulnerabilities regardless of the date because we want to see that whole timeline. We want to see that a vendor has gotten better or worse about responding and mitigating vulnerabilities. We want them to be able to better determine what we call cost of ownership that, well, this program has more vulnerabilities, but the vendor is a lot more responsive. The upgrade uh, cycles are very easy, whereas this other vendor, they have fewer vulnerabilities, but they go a year between releases. So we have software that's sitting vulnerable for up to a year, and it can help guide purchasing decisions or especially in the world of libraries, they can say, you know, it looks like this library has been abandoned. There hasn't been a, a fix to a security vulnerability in six months. There's another fork of it, and it seems like it's being actively maintained on this fork. We should probably move. You know, one of the focuses of our program here is threat intelligence. So I'm wondering, uh, you know, what is your take on threat intelligence? What part do you think it plays in people uh, defending themselves? So, um this might be a little contrarian, but I, I really dislike the, the phrase threat intelligence, and that's primarily because of the way it's used in our industry. Um, hmm. There are a lot of companies that will say, we provide threat intelligence. And I, I say, okay, great. What does that mean to you? And that's when they have to qualify it or disclaim it and say, well, we do IP-based intelligence, or we do threat actor intelligence, or we do binary analysis. And I'm like, okay, great. You do those three types of threat intelligence. Threat intel is this big umbrella. So for us, we provide two types of threat intel, data breach and vulnerabilities. And that's all we do. I I see threat intelligence, generally speaking, as a a critical part of any organization's security system or policies or, you know, how they're going to manage and triage. But I think what's the most important is that each company needs to determine based on their size where they are, how mature their security process is, which of those is going to be the most impactful to them. 
There are companies out there that can certainly use vulnerability intelligence, but they not, may not be in a position to adequately or efficiently use threat actor intelligence. They may not care who's attacking them if they can just keep their system secure. As you, as you point out, threat intelligence can be such a big umbrella that folks who are out there shopping around for it need to know what questions they need to ask. Right. And they need to know what kind of intelligence they're after. And then if any company says, we provide it all, they need to be very, very skeptical. They need to do a long evaluation, 30 to 60 days at least. They need to see what that data looks like. And they need to have their teams internally say, okay, can we consume this data? Great, we can. Now, can we effectively use it or not? Yeah, because, I mean, that's the whole thing, right? I mean, you, the, what good is threat intelligence if it's not actionable? Right. And I've known a lot of companies, and I've known some of the intelligence providers that have sold these subscription feeds for hundreds of thousands of dollars, and the organizations bought into it because, hey, they heard that was the right thing to do. And year, two, five years later, they realize, wait a minute, we are not really using this data. It's not helping us that much and they have to reevaluate that. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting cautionary tale, I think. It um, is, and that's another reason that when you, you go to a, an intelligence provider is that you not only evaluate the, the data that you're receiving, but you evaluate the support. If you have a question about an IP, a threat actor, or a vulnerability, or a data breach, and you go to them, do you get a response? Is it helpful? Is the company willing to work with you on a one-off situation like that? Um, and if they're not, that should be a big warning sign to you as well. Where do you think we're headed with these sorts of things? When it comes to tracking vulnerabilities, uh, wh where's the future lie? It's hard to say. We're actually approaching uh, 200,000 vulnerabilities in our database, which we will probably hit early next week. That's a big number. And we've actually been discussing it internally, saying, well, when we hit 200,000, then what? You know, sure, we want to write a blog about it, but... What's there to say other than it's 200,000 and that's just kind of a notable milestone? And one of my first thoughts was, okay, well, it's 2019 and we hit 200,000 based on the pattern. When are we going to hit 300,000 or 500,000? What happens when we get uh, a lot more efficient and uh, accurate software that can audit code? I mean, we have some out there right now. There are several providers for it. Um, but what happens when that software is applied at scale, say to 90 million GitHub repos? Currently, GitHub has a security uh, tool that will point out vulnerable dependencies, which is largely based on CVE. So you're getting some good information, but you're missing a lot of others because CVE, they don't actually focus on third-party libraries. It's basically whoever goes to them and makes the request or... Uh, and says, I need an ID, whereas we go out of our way to look for those third-party library vulnerabilities because a lot of our customers want that. So in our minds, it's like that software is applied. Now you're scanning, let's say, even 50 million GitHub repos. What happens when the vulnerability count goes from 20,000 in one year to 50,000 in one year or 100,000 in one year? That kind of scale is pretty scary. And the current state that I see the security or, or the larger, larger tech industry is at is that a lot of these organizations, even the big ones, 
don't necessarily have a good system in place to effectively monitor all of their assets and be able to map to those vulnerabilities. A lot of these organizations, um, some huge ones, are still relying on network scanning to find all of their vulnerabilities. And when you're talking about a million endpoints or two million endpoints, even with dozens or hundreds of scanners, you're talking week or two week cycles to look for those vulnerabilities. Whereas if they went to an asset inventory system and tied that into a vulnerability intelligence feed, then it would be as the vulnerability is published, they instantly know, well, we have 75 machines we have to patch, but wait, this may or may not affect us. Let's investigate. Oh, yes, it does. Okay, get to patching. No, it doesn't. Great. We will recast the score or mark it as a zero for our environmental impact, and we're done. So I think that moving forward, a lot of these organizations are going to find themselves having to fully reevaluate their entire process and their entire model for vulnerability detection and remediation. Yeah, and and the point that you make there, I think, is an important one as well in that, uh, and it sort of goes to your name of of risk-based security of it's not just a matter of of, uh, being aware of necessary patches, for example, and going out and doing them. It's, It's evaluating that uh, to see where the priority needs to be. How how quickly do I need to get to this based on the risk it represents to my business? Exactly. And so take Microsoft Patch Tuesday, which everyone knows and loathes. The thing is that it's no longer Microsoft Patch Tuesday. Adobe for a long time has been releasing on the same day. And uh, we frequently see SAP. We see Google Chrome. We see Firefox. We see Cisco doing these huge releases on that same day. And so for an organization to get vulnerability reports saying, okay, well, Windows, Windows Server, Cisco, SAP, Chrome, Adobe, my God, where do we start with this? That's where, uh, as you say, it becomes which ones pose the biggest risk to us. And that starts with something as simple as a CVSS score, which is great, But you also have to look beyond that to see if there are any caveats or uh, little gotchas with the the vulnerability. Maybe it only affects a certain type of architecture. Maybe this one requires authentication and you have a great uh, policy for credentials. You know, maybe that one is considered less risk. So as the vulnerabilities go up and as these companies are releasing more at one time, exactly, organizations need to look at it with a a little finer tooth comb and say, okay, today we can only remediate maybe 50% of what was released. Let's quickly figure out which ones are the most important to us. So what's your advice for folks getting started with this? They're trying to get a handle on uh, how to better manage dealing with vulnerabilities, uh, getting a handle on how they can evaluate uh, their risk and, and act on it. What's a good place to get started? I think for me, the number one thing is goes back to the uh, asset inventory. The only way you can really understand your organization and what's in front of you is to have a complete inventory of all of your systems, all of your basically anything with an IP address, anything with an endpoint. You need to know not only how many machines or virtual hosts are on the network, you need to know what software is on there. And when possible, you need to know what third-party dependencies those rely on because you may uh, get a a notification about a vulnerability, let's say, in some third-party library, and you're like, well, I've kind of heard of that, I think, maybe. 
And in reality, that might actually be a library used in several of your internal applications. So the better uh, inventory you have, the better you can respond to those uh, vulnerabilities when they come in, because then they are quickly mapped to all of the, the assets in your organization. So in my mind, that's probably the best place to start uh, because we still hear about horror stories where a new admin joins a team and they run a vulnerability scan and they say, hey, wait a minute, what's this IP address? And the rest of the team's like, I don't know. We didn't know that was on the network. Hmm. And they have a box just floating out there on their network that hasn't been touched in a year or five years. And you hear these stories from time to time and you're like, hey, wow, that's kind of funny, a five-year-old unpatched box but not so funny to an organization that's trying to maintain a secure posture. Our thanks to Brian Martin from Risk-Based Security for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Zane Picorni, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. <laughs>